Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, Jim. As Jim mentioned, I'm Josiah Daniel. I'm an alumnus of the History Department at the University of Texas at Austin. My proudest degree is my MA in History. I'm the chair of the department's visiting committee, and I am happy to be a recent new member of the World Affairs Council. We're pleased to have Dr. Jeremy Suri here with us tonight to speak about a very important topic, nation building. He is the Mac Brown Distinguished Professor for Global Leadership history and public policy at UT Austin. He holds appointments in the university's history department and also in the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs. He came to the University of Texas last year after a distinguished career at the University of Wisconsin. Madison's loss is Texas's gain and he has greatly expanded and enhanced the already substantial resources and talents at UT Austin in the fields of foreign relations and diplomatic history. The UT History Department, which by the way, is number one in the nation in placing its PhDs in tenure track jobs, includes at least 10 international historians, plus there's the impressive faculty and resources of the LBJ School. And the result is that with Professor Suri, the University of Texas is now one of the two or three place, places in the nation where the most promising young students and scholars of foreign relations and international history are studying and aspire to come. Professor Suri's credentials in history begin with an A.B. at Stanford, an M.A. from Ohio, and then his Ph.D. in history from Yale. International history and foreign relations have been the field that he has relentlessly tilled, and the bountiful crops of his prodigious labors include more than 60 articles or book chapters numerous book reviews and op-eds. He has, by the way, a great blog at jeremysuri.net. His books include the book on which tonight's presentation is based, Liberty Surest Guardian, a second book that I found to be fascinating and profound is Henry Kissinger in the American Century, published by Harvard in 2007, and before that in 2004, his book Power and Protest, Global Revolution and the Rise of Detente. He's not only a superb teacher of undergraduates and graduate students, he's just been named one of the 300 top professors in the nation by the Princeton Review, but he's also a scholar who links up and bridges history with a variety of other subject matters and disciplines and endeavors. For example, um, there'll be some flyers in the back um, as you exit about a two-day um, executive education seminar that he will conduct at the LBJ School in May. And he's a public intellectual whose speeches and public presentations I literally could not count. I mentioned his book about Henry Kissinger. To me, it exemplifies the Surrey method. It's neither a standard biography nor a traditional account of the Cold War. Rather, he uses Kissinger's life to demonstrate global change social and political transformations across nations and societies over the 20th century, resulting in our current world. His thesis is that we must understand the experiences of Henry Kissinger and American power as processes of globalization that have revised our understanding of things like citizenship, leadership, democracy, and even faith. Hopefully, he may have a moment in the course of his presentation to say a little bit about what it was like to interview the notoriously difficult Henry Kissinger. His newest book, Liberty Surest Guardian, tackles a concept freighted with competing meanings as we think back on the events and politics of the past decade, nation building. When I heard Jeremy speak for the first time six months ago, he changed my way of thinking about this subject. And so I'm most pleased to introduce to you now, Professor Jeremy Suri.
Wow, I'm, I'm afraid to say anything after, <laughs> after all that. Uh, that was a wonderful uh, introduction, uh, and uh, I'm really very grateful uh, to my friend Josiah Daniel and his wife Susan. Uh, I, I've had the chance to, to get to know them a little bit, and Josiah and I spent some time together this afternoon. And uh, what I respect most about him, and that I hope we're cultivating in our students, uh, is a sense that learning, citizenship, and professional work all go together. There's a way, a curious way in our society in which we think about these as different things, like you learn in college, and then you go on and become a professional. Um, but actually, they're deeply intertwined. Uh, Josiah's too modest to talk about it, but he gave me today an article he's written, published, um, on the 1948 election uh, and the legal issues surrounding Lyndon Johnson stealing the election from Coke Stevenson. And in fact, Josiah, in this article, corrects my friends and fellow historians for getting much of it wrong. Uh, I think that, that captures uh, how one can be a leading attorney, uh, a leading thinker, citizen, active in various groups, and also a scholar at the same time. Uh, and I'm going to tell that story to my students as soon as I get back, because I think that's what we're, what we're trying to create. And I hope that's what our history department does, is provide a space for people to come together. I know the World Affairs Council does that. Uh, I, this is my first visit here. I hope it's not my last. I've spent a lot of time at various uh, World Affairs Councils around the country, uh, and I'm always impressed uh, with the interest that local communities have in foreign policy and foreign affairs, and I'm always impressed with the work of people like Jim Falk, who are able to bring people together. I think this is absolutely crucial. It was, of course, Alexis de Tocqueville, who, writing more than 150 years ago, said that the vibrance of American democracy for him was the local connections that people make around various issues of political importance. That's what separated democratic America from undemocratic France in his eyes. So these groups, I think, are crucial to that buzzword we use all the time, civil society or social capital. And I feel honored just to have the chance to come to talk to a group like this. Uh, so thank you, Jim, for inviting me. I do want to thank um, the people who do the real work around here. Uh, Rachel, Rachel Vogel in particular, uh, and the other Rachel whose last name I didn't catch, but both Rachels. Uh, and then the two Lancasters, Jocelyn and Kendra, uh, who have uh, just been fantastic to work with. Um, I also want to uh, thank my, uh, my boss, uh, Alan Tully, who is here, the chair of the history department, and uh, Rick Geyer, who is a great friend of the history department. Rick, I don't, there you are. Um, and last of all, and I promise that I won't go on thanking people forever, I do want to thank my friend Jim Young. Uh, and his wife, Susan Young. I met them at a Chancellor's Council event a number of months ago in, in San Antonio, and Jim has just been wonderful, and Susan as well, in reaching out to me. Uh, Jim picked me up at the airport today and took me to the TEDx SMU event that they were doing, and I'm going to be involved in, in TEDx with, uh, with Jim. I, I'm just astounded at the energy he has in bringing people together around issues of serious policy, and uh, that's what our society needs more of. So thank you, Jim, for that. So my book uh, does grow out of, I don't know if it's a Surrey method, my wife would call it uh, a Surrey craziness, uh, but it's an effort on my part to think through an issue that is scholarly, but I have to say also professional. Uh, I come from a family of immigrants. I come from a family of, of pretty much uh, nothing but the shirts on their backs. This is the American story. Uh, part of my family comes from India. Part of my family comes from Russia, and especially the Russian side, they, they didn't really come willfully. Uh, they came because they didn't have many other places to go. And I think since I can remember, since I was five, six, my earliest memories, I've always been fascinated with how people's experiences in the past affect the ways they think about contemporary issues of importance. It has always seemed obvious to me that we do not look forward without looking back. Or to put it in other terms, that the experience from which we draw when we make decisions, especially big decisions of policy, power, and money, the experiences are less what we read in our briefing papers and more what we ourselves have learned. The great political scientist, Alexander George, put this best, saying that it is not political science, but it is history that captures the operational code for individuals who make key decisions in our lives. It is what they bring to the table. It is the experiences they've lived through, the institutions they operate in, the ideas that often are so deeply felt that the ideas are hardly even articulated. They become assumptions, right? Do Americans really have to believe in democracy? It's so ingrained in the ways we think about our lives. We might differ over what it means, but it's so ingrained in who we are. My desire to study history 
My desire to write about history is a desire to understand the present and make the present a better world. Not by making the history serve the present, that's bad history, but by drawing upon the history of the past to help us understand the present better. Those are two different things. We do not write history to serve the political purposes of the present. We write history to provide us a knowledge base for understanding the present. It is only by studying the past that we can know how we've come to where we are today and that we can imagine our future. And I really want to stress that point. History is about imagination. This is what's lost in bad history courses, right? History is not about facts. History is not about memorization. History is about understanding the human condition in a way that allows us to imagine what the human condition can become at another time. It is the imaginative part of history, which is the most crucial part of our work. And if I may say so, what we lack most in our society today is more imagination. We have lived through far worse. Take anyone who lived through the 1930s and 40s. Do you want to go back to that world? Do you want to trade your place for the Depression? Do you want to trade your place for World War II? As bad as our enemies might be, as bad as our economic conditions are, they're nothing like what they were then. What's different is that we are not imagining a new world as much as I would say that generation did. And this is not to be falsely nostalgic, but it is to say how important imagination is. And I would tell you that I think imagination must come from history. It must come from understanding who we are, where we've been, and how we might change by understanding who we are as a society. And that's the point of departure for my book. It's the point of departure for all of my work. It will always be the point of departure for my work because I can't help myself, I have to say. But it is the point of departure for my work particularly this most recent book, because I think nation-building and the experience of American activities in places like Afghanistan, where Jim has just been and knows, I'm sure, much more than I do, uh, Iraq, potentially Iran, Syria, and the list goes on, that this experience of Americans abroad today, this experience and frustration with nation-building comes from a long history. It reflects a long set of events, and what we are doing there also shows the nature of our imagination today and where we go forward is deeply dependent upon how we understand how we've come to where we are and reimagine where we're going forward. My book is not a book advocating nation building, but it is not a book trashing nation building. It is a book attempting to help us understand what we are doing when we are nation building. And I will argue that we will do it again, hopefully to do it better. But I don't think there's a future without nation-building. But to say that nation-building is in our future as it's been in our past is not to say it has to be in the future in exactly the same way it's been in the past. The way to assure that we repeat the past is not to study it. The way to assure that we improve the future is to build upon the past. So I'm going to put out five propositions tonight that come from the book, uh, five big arguments I make in the book about nation-building. Uh, I'm going to put them out relatively quickly because we don't have a lot of time, uh, but I hope they'll provoke you and I hope we can have a discussion about them. Um, and um, if you agree with what I say, you're right. If you don't, you're wrong, but that's, we can still have a discussion anyway. Um, my kids have realized this. They usually stop me at that point when they, in the conversation. <laughs> so the first proposition I want to put out there is that Americans have long struggled from the 18th century where I start the book through the present with the same big question. How do you find order in the world without building empire and repression? How do you find freedom in the world without creating chaos and anarchy? Fundamentally, American society is born from a struggle against empire. But fundamentally, from the very start, American self-interest is tied to a world of orderly trade and interaction across space. We are not the first global generation by any means at all. And there's wonderful scholarship, actually, in 18th century America, some of which written, is written by Alan Tully, that makes this point, that points to the global nature of American society then as well, in a different kind of way. Americans have long struggled, I argue in my book, long struggled to find a set of institutions, a set of principles, a set of habits to build order without empire, and to assert freedom without anarchy. And we call this the nation-state. If you looked at the world in the 18th century, the nation-state hardly existed as we know it. 
If you look at the world today, it is the only real game in town. There are many alternatives. Many are talking about things succeeding a nation state, either at large confederal levels or internal, subnational levels. But as Mark Twain said, the notice of my death is long too early, right? Much too early. The nation state is still around and still a major part of American and international behavior in general. What does it mean to be part of a nation state? It means to be part of an entity of self-governance, not always democracy, but self-governance, an entity of sovereignty, sovereignty. The great Edmund Morgan, great historian of the 18th century, called this the American invention of sovereignty. The notion that there is a people that have a territory and that there is a government attached to that people and territory as such and that there is a symbiotic relationship between those three. That was a radical idea when George Washington and James Madison articulated it. It is now so assumed in our world that we don't even talk about it. And if you look back in the 18th century, the imagining Americans had, based upon their deep reading of prior history, was an imagination of a world of nation-states. Thomas Jefferson called it a society of states, a society of states, where individual groups would have territories and governments that were accountable and representative, and they would interact with each other, pursuing their self-interest in civilized ways, and in so doing, they would preserve their self-interests and the interests of the United States and others as well. Not a hidden hand, but a world of self-ordering, self-governing, territorially bound units. Again, Edmund Morgan puts this very well. It was a fiction Americans imagined, and in the act of imagining, they made it real. Think about it. The Constitution exists because there's a claim that there's an American people. The American people exist because there's a structure called the Constitution and the government. There was no American people before the Constitution, and there was no government for all Americans before the Constitution either. Their legitimacy is hinged one upon the other. It is a fiction. It is a tautology. It is an imagining. It is an imagining that Americans made real. I would tell you that was the greatest success in American history right there. That is the germ of our society and is the germ of many other nation states around the world. My first proposition is that this is the American imagining of the world. This is the world we seek. Historians of science put this very well. No scientist goes into the laboratory and does objective research. Everyone has a vision of what the world looks like, the assumed natural order. This is the assumed natural order for Americans, what we expect the world to look like. And this has guided our behavior. It is the best way of explaining how we have asserted our power as far as we have, but how little we have done to build an effective empire. You might say we get some of the benefits of empire. You might say we have done some of the bad things of empire in our worst moments, and we certainly have. But there is no society that has sought to exert as much power as we have without any kind of true imperial set of institutions. Look at how the British manage an empire and look at the United States. We have no colonial office. We systematically don't train ourselves in foreign languages even though we're operating around the world. There is a fundamental American distrust of empire as we exert international power, a fundamental belief that nation states can be the core power. And we have consistently gone around the world trying to build nation states. That's what nation building is. And this is my second proposition that this is not a 20th century story. This is an 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st century story. It is deeply ingrained in our history. It is there from the beginning, and it is there in us today. And my book spends a lot of time looking at American society at home to see this process at home. The single most significant nation-building enterprise undertaken by any society in the 19th century was post-Civil War reconstruction in the United States. And as I argue in the book, it created the model for American nation-building overseas. At the end of the war, Secretary of War Stanton, Edwin Stanton, did what every Secretary of War has done after an American war overseas. He found someone in the military who could be trusted, who seemed to have a sense of how to operate in newly occupied areas. In this case, his name was Oliver Otis Howard. He was a general who had been with William Tecumseh Sherman. Called him to Washington, gave him as, as Howard describes in his memoir, a basket of letters, and said, here, you are now the Freedmen's Bureau. It will be your job to make former slaves into freedmen. It will be your job 
to turn Southern Confederates into parts of our union. Oh, and by the way, you'll have no budget. Just requisition the resources you can get from somewhere else, right? My chair, Alan Tully, is accustomed to hearing this, right? Do more with no new budget, right? Do more with less. This is the American way as much as anything. And it was given no detailed imperial blueprint, no set of institutions pre-existing to draw on, but told to do it by virtue of the righteousness of the American cause and to do it by virtue of the sense that this would be in the interests of the people in the region as much as, as much as Americans. Many ask me, is this not another version of the French mission civilatrice, going in and claiming to civilize the natives? It's different, because the mission civilatrice is hinged upon the French having institutions and having the established knowledge and actually going in and educating and social engineering a society. This is not about social engineering at all. It's institutionally light. It's about going in and creating a framework. It's about going in and empowering people to govern themselves. This is why we get into so much trouble, because we underinvest quite often in institutions. But this is also why Americans have sometimes been so successful, because we don't depend upon the kinds of institutions that repress the freedom urges of many people's ire. That's the, the, co the complexity that's at work here. So my book takes us through Civil War Reconstruction and shows how the experience of Civil War Reconstruction, which failed more than it succeeded, but still transformed the South, created the basis for African-American education and cit citizenship, created the basis for an integrated national market economy that could now become a world beater in a way it never was before. How this process not only was an experience, and here's the history, but created the foundation for the next, next experience. And part of the story in my book is how American citizens, like American military figures, always fight the last war. We always fight the last war. We always learn from the last set of experiences, not from the textbooks, not from the historians, but from the experiences we had. It was the young men and women who were involved in post-Civil War Reconstruction who went to the Philippines in 1898, 1899. My favorite figure for this, the one I focus on in the book, the one who's been terribly misunderstood in American history, is William Howard Taft. William Howard Taft was not only Supreme Court Chief Justice and President of the United States and Solicitor General and Secretary of War, he was also the first American civilian government, governor of the Philippines, and before that, his first memories were of the end of the Civil War and Reconstruction. William Howard Taft was sent to the Philippines by President McKinley because McKinley wanted nation building. He did not want Arthur MacArthur and the military carrying out what was approaching almost genocidal behavior. He did not want that. He did not want military occupation. He wanted nation building, building in the Philippines. He wanted to do, McKinley said, what we had done for the American South for our Filipino brown brothers. Of course, there's racism and condescension, but that's not the whole story. And that's what William Howard Taft sought to do with mixed results. He created the first Philippine legislature, created the basis for Philippine self-governance to some extent, but did not go nearly far enough. In some ways, he allowed his paternalism to get in the way of his nation building. But it was that experience, ladies and gentlemen, that provided the learning and the basis for American activities in Germany after World War II. There was one man in particular you might think was slightly important who spent some time in the Philippines, in fact, spent most of the 1920s there surviving under, Arthur Macar under Douglas MacArthur's terrible rule. His name was Dwight David Eisenhower. And when Dwight David Eisenhower arrived in Germany, it was not the memos he read on German Reconstruction. It was his experience in the Philippines that structured the way he thought about German society. The most important thing he realized Americans had to do was find the local elites who knew how to get things done. And whether they were Nazi or not, so long as they were not the worst killers, he wanted to work with them on our side. That's actually what Taft had done to some extent in the Philippines. Ethically questionable, but that's the story of German Reconstruction. That's the story of German Reconstruction, absent denazification except at the very highest levels. But collaboration and the building of structures of institutional governance. The Soviets did a better job of purging the Nazis than the Americans. The Americans did a better job of building a functioning nation state. Those are the facts. You can take whichever normative side you want on that, but it seems to me those are the facts. And I go through that in the book. In Vietnam, it was the experience of Germany that led many, like Walt Rostow, Robert McNamara, and Lyndon Johnson himself to believe that the United States could do it again in a very different society and that they could do it fast and do it 
without having to listen to the locals because we were so much more powerful. This was the old story of David Halberstam's, the intoxication of hubris, the terrible effects of success. I tell my students the greatest challenge is not when you fail, it's when you've succeeded and you have your next challenge. And Americans failed that challenge in Vietnam. In Afghanistan and Iraq, I argue in the book that Americans, at least in Afghanistan, started out with many things on their sides. It was a terrible event on September 11th. Terrible event, as we all know. But there was actually a mobilization of American talent and interest, and we saw the best of American nation building at work at first, I think. Which is to say, Americans, yes, were scared. Yes, overreacted in certain ways. But there was a clear commitment from an administration that claimed it would not do nation building, that it had to make the region better. And I think they took that seriously. They believed they had to make the region better. Their problem was they didn't follow through on that. They didn't actually think through what that meant. And the early successes, and I think they were successes in Afghanistan, led to a belief that this could be done everywhere quickly. And I think there was an absence of political, shall we say, courage at home to actually mobilize Americans for the difficult challenges that would be involved with this. But I think we have to take seriously that the Afghanistan operation was an effort at nation building and that to this day, for all the problems, and I do think it's probably time to take our forces out, for all the problems, it's hard to come up for, with a solution in the region that doesn't involve nation building in some way or another. Continued violence and misgovernance is going to leave that region mired in continued trouble. I don't have an answer for how we get out of that, but nation building seems to be the only game in town. Maybe we shouldn't do it, but it certainly has to be done there, it seems to me. This brings me to my third point. If there is a consistent American set of ideas, and if there's a long and mixed history, the most important part of this history is actually the particularity, the contingency, the importance of circumstance. We study history not because there are laws of history, not because things repeat themselves, not even because the same ideas produce the same consequences. They don't. That's the cunning of history. You can do the same thing in two different places and get two different sets of results. In fact, you usually do. The difference in history is always made by the ability to adjust to the particularities of a circumstance. Another way of putting that is that leadership matters. Everything I've written about is about the importance of leadership. Everything in history, I think, is about leadership. It doesn't have to be national presidents. It can be local leaders. It can be business leaders. It can be leaders of community groups. Leadership matters enormously because as Tolstoy writes better than any academic historian could, human beings do not naturally flee to the best solutions. They flee to the easiest solutions. They flee to the easiest solutions. And it requires leadership to get people to go to the best rather than the easiest. And the easiest is rarely the right way. And I think we could argue that when Americans have done best with nation building, their ideas have not been better than when they've done worse. But their leadership has drawn them to do the harder things that are required. Take the end of World War II again. The biggest fear Americans had in 1945-46, we know this well, was not communism. The biggest fear they had was a return to the Depression because every American knew that the New Deal had not solved the Depression. World War II had solved the Depression. So the logical explanation was that the end of the war would mean a return to Depression. And if you had lived through that period, especially if you were old enough to have lived through the 1893 Depression, you had seen this twice in your lifetime. The courage Americans had the leadership they had on both sides of the aisles was to recognize they had to invest to prevent that horrible thing from happening rather than taking what they could while they could, which is in essence what the Soviets did. They took the resources they could take while the getting was good. It was exactly what Stalin said. Another war is coming. Another depression is coming. That's how the system works. Let's extract the value we can extract out of East Germany. And he had a moral argument. They lost 30 million people in the Soviet Union. Right? He had a moral argument to make. Let's take what we can take while we can. Americans did not say that. They invested. And I don't think this was some natural genetic goodness of Americans. It wasn't some natural foresight. It was the kinds of leaders Americans had who educated citizens, and not just national leaders, local leaders of various kinds who made these arguments. We can talk about this. I try to talk about some of this in my book. We did not do that during the Vietnam War. And we only did that for a very, very, very short time after September 11th. Circumstances matter, 
and leadership matters in adjusting ideas to circumstances. And we as a society must do a better job of not only educating leaders but encouraging that kind of leadership. That is, I think, one of the most important takeaways about nation building. Nation building is about leaders. It is not an organic process. Fourth proposition is that in understanding all of this, we have to work our way out of our categories of good and evil. I said this at the start. You can't be for or against nation building. It's too deeply ingrained. You have to be for doing it well and against doing it poorly. And that means choosing your cases. That means choosing your time. And that means recognizing that there has to be a mix of optimism and humility. That's my formula for successful politics. And Jim and I were talking about this this afternoon. You can't get anywhere if you think you can't do anything. That's a recipe for small dreams and small politics and small minds. You have to think big. But you have to be humble in thinking big. Thinking big doesn't mean believing you're all powerful and have all the answers. It is this mix of optimism and humility. It is that that gets us beyond good and evil. We haven't had evil leaders ever in American society. And we've never had benevolent leaders. Every politician I've studied is vain, egotistical, self-serving, and ambitious. They wouldn't get there if they weren't. That includes Abraham Lincoln as much as any other. And none of them, even those who have gone to the darkest of their dark sides, were truly evil. But the challenge has been mixing optimism and humility. LBJ was overly optimistic about Vietnam. Bush was under-humble about, about Afghanistan and Iraq, right? As were the Democrats. This is not to, to pick one person out. This is not a partisan comment. I, I think I'm dissing all the parties, I hope, uh, equally here, right? This is an argument for optimism and humility. This is an argument for finding in ourselves that. And if nothing else, our history should provide us with models for that, not because we can do the same. But we can see how time and again Americans have been able to think big, have been able to help other societies change themselves, and do it in ways that are not about Americans being all-powerful and necessarily at the center of the universe. My favorite story of that is indeed the story of Reconstruction in the South. Historians commonly and rightfully criticize it for not going far enough. The Union did not do enough to eliminate the sources of violence against African Americans. It did not do enough to provide a basis for poor whites in the South who had lost their sustenance as a consequence of the Civil War. There were terrible limitations to the Union, but there was also a high hope echoed in every word of Lincoln's, echoed in every word of Charles Sumner's, a high hope of a union that would work together, a high hope that was embedded in real amendments, real commitments from community groups as well as the national government, a real investment in education, a real investment in the basis for infrastructural development, a real investment, I would say, unparalleled in making the losers of a civil war in part the winners of a peace. And that's, of course, what bothers historians sometimes that some of those who shouldn't win did win in the end. But that was the humility of American society. It wasn't that the Union said we won and we have all the answers. It was that the Union said we must build a nation together. That's what makes Abraham Lincoln endure, right? People stand at the Lincoln Memorial like my seven-year-old son and read the second inaugural to read that message. That's what endures there. That's what endures in that message. That's what Americans said at the end of World War II as well. They were not flawless. But this was not to be victor's justice. This was to be a cooperative world order. That's what the Atlantic Charter is all about. That's what the United Nations Conference was all about. That's what about American management of its atomic monopoly was all about. This was to be a cooperative, anti-communist, but yet cooperative system. Not open to all equally, but not about America imposing its way upon the world. The history of humility and optimism hand in hand can be an inspiring history for us to think about bringing those things together in our own world, I think. And this brings me to my final proposition, perhaps my most important one. I hope people remember this and argue with it to some extent maybe, which is that there is something to the word wisdom. It's a word we don't use very much. But we've all met wise people. We've all been in societies that seem to operate out of wisdom and others that don't. Wisdom, I think, is the goal of higher education. Wisdom is why I'm in this business, not because I'm wise, but because I hope somehow by being unwise I can get others to be wise. Wisdom is about the ability to see beyond your immediate moment, to see beyond yourself. It's what Clausewitz, Carl von Clausewitz, calls the kudoi, the ability to see the structure of something, 
It's what Tolstoy saw, says is an understanding of the spirit of your times. It's what Sun Tzu calls knowing thyself and knowing another. Wisdom is about more than facts. Wisdom is about more than formulas. It's definitely about more than mathematical calculations, as important as mathematical calculations are. But it's also about more than eloquence. It's about more than reading documents. It's about more than being able to throw out historical facts. It's about understanding relationships. It's about understanding human nature. It's about anticipation. It's about seeing beyond the immediate to the important. And Henry Kissinger, and now I will talk about Henry Kissinger a little bit, said this best to me, and I'm sure I'm not the only person he said it to, and I, but I quoted it in my book, so I take credit for quoting it, even though it's, they're his words. Uh, what he said was, I think, very profound. He said the biggest challenge in policy that he had seen over his long career was that the smart policymakers generally let the immediate crowd out the important. They get too caught up in what is immediately happening before them and forget what's really important and find themselves in a place they didn't expect to be and say, holy, how did I get here? How did I get to this place? That's the story I tell of Lyndon Johnson. That's the story I would tell of George W. Bush. That's the story I would tell of many of these figures. Think about it in your own life. How much time do you spend on your email relative to how much time you spend on what's really important in your life? How much time do you spend on dealing with the crisis du jour rather than the real strategic issues? Wise people and wise societies find a way to think about the broader relationships. And nation building is fundamentally about that. It is about the effort by the United States not to make other societies in our image, but to invest in the kinds of developments in other societies that over the long run will serve their interests and ours. It is the investment in a free press. It is the investment in structures of self-governance and stability. It is the investment in civilian control over the military. It is investment in the rule of law. It is investment in education. All these things we take for granted. All these things that are so important. And it is the American effort to do this that has positively transformed the world in places like Germany, the American South, in part in the Philippines, and it is the American effort to do this too fast and in misguided ways that in other parts of the world has led to different results. We need to ask ourselves how we can be wiser about pursuing this vision. We need to ask ourselves what the best ways are to organize our resources for this vision. And we need to ask ourselves where we can do it. To say that nation building is important and part of who we are is not to say we do it in all places at all times. It is to say, in fact, the opposite, that we need to choose our cases carefully, that we need to choose how we do it carefully. It is to say that the question is not whether to be in Afghanistan or not to be in Afghanistan. It is the question of where do we believe we need to invest our resources for the future of our society and others, and to think about putting our resources there. If that happens to be Afghanistan, then that's where we should be. If it's not Afghanistan, it's not where we should be. We need to ask ourselves those questions. We need to turn the challenges of our time into opportunities. We need to ask ourselves what kind of world we want to create. The takeaway message I hope for my book is that Americans have changed the world, and we are changing the world. But we have changed it in different directions, and we have changed it with different degrees of success and failure. The choice is ours. Is there a positive nation-building vision that we want to invest in for our future? I believe there should be. Are there places we should do it? I believe there are. But should we do it everywhere? I don't believe we can. And are we doing it in the right places? I don't think we are. We need to have that conversation as a society. We have no choice because we cannot live alone. We never have. And we will never be satisfied because of what I said at the start of my lecture in a world of different blocks competing against each other without some coherent vision. The American dream is of a world not of 18th and 19th century conflict, but of post-45 peace, the world we've lived in. We are too committed to that. We have too many interests there. But as I've tried to show in this brief lecture and as I try to show in my book, this world did not just come about organically. It came about because of decisions that were made by figures and citizens. 
And we need to ask ourselves those questions now. There is no better time because the budget constraints and the challenges we face now should discipline us to ask those questions. I think American society historically has been at its best when it's actually been most constrained in its resources. We've been at our worst when it's come too easy or appeared to come too easy. So my hope today is that the World Affairs Council and other groups will lead an effort by our country, this is the activist side of my work, right, to actually get us to start thinking about how we can turn these challenges into an opportunity and how we can make the disciplined choices we want to make. I think you can do that. And I think all the cases of nation building I've pointed to have involved groups like yours playing a role. And so I hope you guys will play a role in the future soon, and I hope that I will have a chance to write that history and use it as a set of lessons for my students going forward. Thank you. Thank you so much, and you've certainly given us a lot to think about, and I think one of the most challenging questions is going to come from Shannon, who is a, in 11th grade, and she says, when responding to nations and their call to help, do you have the responsibility to nation build, or do we have, I guess, or is it a global responsibility? And then she also writes in here, what is the role of R2P, the responsibility to protect? The questions from uh, students always are the hardest, <laughs> are the hardest ones. So I'll take both of those questions from Shannon. Those are great questions. Thank you, Shannon. I knew when I saw you walk in that you were trouble. Um, <laughs> so the first question, uh, when uh, there is a need for nation building, as there is all the time around us, right? Take Syria, for example, if I might say a little bit. I'm sure Jim knows more about Syria and others in the room than I do. I'm not an expert on Syria, but I've been watching this story. And it's heartbreaking to see what's going on there. It's absolutely heartbreaking to see. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that Assad is doing everything he can to butcher people who are simply asking for a right to have some say in their society. Um, so uh, there is a moral question that's raised there. There's also a practical question. I don't think it's the United States' moral responsibility alone. I don't think it's right for the United States to pretend it is our responsibility alone, that somehow we're a moral shining star on the hill that should do this, or shining city on a hill that's supposed to do this. Nor do I think it's right for us to assume we have the answers. I have not. I've been asking people in the foreign policy community. I don't think anyone has an answer for Syria. There are all kinds of reasons Libya was a lot easier than Syria, right? And I don't think there's anyone in this room who wants to say, let's just go to Syria tomorrow. So uh, I think we need to recognize the limits of our power, the limits of our moral standing, the limits of what we can do. I do think there's a global responsibility. And what I like about R2P, right to, the right to protection, right, or responsibility to protect, is that um, there is a responsibility we have as a civilized society internationally to say there are certain kinds of behavior that are not acceptable. doesn't mean we can always stop it. But we have to say it's unacceptable because if we don't, that enables others to practice that kind of behavior. And I think it's very dangerous for the future of the Arab Spring that I'm hopeful about, optimistic and humble about, um, that if this continues on, because Assad will empower others to do the same if he wins. So how do we think about this? I think it is our individual responsibility to try to mobilize other global actors. That's how I would reconcile that. It is not our responsibility nor our capability to go in and right the wrongs in Syria. But I think it is our responsibility to get other groups to work with us and to take maybe the lead even on this, and at times we might have to take the lead. I don't think there's a clear formula for that, but I think we need to be working hard at that, and I think we're doing some of that, but I don't think we're well enough equipped to do that. We underfund our diplomacy and overfund our military, which means our bias is to use the military, right? We need more diplomats out there, not just working with the Syrians, but working with all the countries in the region. The best thing we did in Libya was to get the African Union to play a major role in that operation, both for international legitimacy but also for their knowledge of the region. We need to do that. There are plenty of people in the Middle East and other parts of the world who care about these issues, whose interests align with ours, who believe in nation building and would pursue something that would fit our image. We need to be better at working with them. And I, again, Jim knows more about this than I do, but I'm constantly struck by how underprepared we are for that kind of work. I think the solution is getting more young people trained and into the diplomatic service broadly defined uh, to do this. Uh, but our society has not made that choice right now. And you're talking about more budget cutbacks. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Questions from the floor, and if you'd wait for a microphone so we can podcast. Yes, sir. Tell us the role for Kansas. Hold on. Well, excuse me. we got a podcast. <laughs> Tell us the role of corporate business in places like Syria and nation building. Yeah. And what can businesses do in lieu of having diplomats and people making connecting those dots between like-minded parties? Great, great question, Bob. Um, I, my, my, my feeling is this, and I, I differ with some other historians on this. Um, I don't think business is a force for bad or a force for good. I think it's a force out there. It has a logic of its own, just like education has a logic of its own, right? Every industry has its own logic. Max Weber told us that more than 100 years ago, right? And I think business can be a tool used effectively by policymakers for other purposes that will also serve businesses' purposes. It can also be misused, and business can pursue negative outcomes if not properly managed. Everyone needs managing. That doesn't mean that they need repressing and need to be told what to do from the center. But I'm a believer that any kind of absolute unchecked power is corrupting. Too much money corrupts people. Never leave money on the table. I tell my children, never tempt someone. Even a good person gives in to temptation, right? So what leadership needs to do is find ways to get people in the business community and people in the academic community and elsewhere to work together. And I talk in my book about how Herbert Hoover did this. This was the Herbert Hoover vision in many ways. It didn't work in the Depression, but it worked damn well after World War I to deal with war relief, and it worked very well after World War II. And actually, you'll see if you read my book that Herbert Hoover is a key person for Harry Truman in doing this. They got the labor unions, the business entities, the academics, and the civil rights activists all together to see an interest in reconstructing Germany. That's good politics. Truman didn't say, I'm going to support business over union or union over business. That made no sense to him at all. And he wasn't anti-union or pro-union. He got people to work together. Right? And I think that's what good business people do, right? Our problem today, I think, uh, and again, there are people in the room who know more about this than I do, what I see is historically different. is not just the polarization, but is the treatment of business as a subcontractor rather than a partner. And that is historically different. Uh, there's always been some element of that. But we've gone over the last 10 years to spending more, but doing it through a subcontracting mo- method, which I think is about not claiming political responsibility, Congress doesn't have to claim it's actually responsible for this. Uh, And it's also about trying to uh, find easy expert solutions. It's a kind of technocracy, right? You hire DynCorp or you hire Lockheed rather than developing talent and actually having a discussion about it. That's historically dangerous, I think, not just for the non-democratic implications, but because I think it breaks down partnerships. Subcontractors are not partners. Partners are partners. So I want to see more real partnership. Uh, and, and, and again, Jim probably knows more about this than I do, but I think what these kinds of groups show is that there are people in the business community who want to partner, right? Well, that, well, that's such a good point. I mean, that, that after Iraq and the fiasco with Afghanistan, the State Department will, Hillary Clinton will call these summits, and they'll invite the GEs and so forth, and they'll have a nice meeting and a photo op, but nothing comes of exactly. it. Exactly. And then what you end up having is Fleur and Dynacor doing their contracts. Absolutely right. There ain't um, short-term strategic interest has kind of been the center of American foreign policy, it seems to me, for quite a while now. So do you think it's time to move away from short-term strategic interest and develop a long-term mentality about foreign policy and nation-building? Great, great question. What, what's your name? Ian. Ian. Thanks, Ian. Great question. You're, you're another student, aren't you? This is fantastic. Wow. Excellent. Proud dad, I hope, too. <laughs> thanks, Ian. Um, so... Uh, Yes. Uh, I, I, like I think everyone in this room, gets frustrated at the short-term self-interest of Americans. But here the historian in me will say, uh, this is not particularly new. Uh, This has always been there, right? Uh, I think it might get heightened by the way we organize uh, corporate reporting and things like that. But it's always been there. And its founders intentionally create a two-year cycle for members of Congress uh, and the House for exactly that reason. So I don't think that's so new. But I think uh, where there's a problem is what are the short-term interests you're focused on? You can be short-term about thinking about the economy, but that's different from being short-term about filling your wallet. Those are two different things. You can have a short-term interest in making the economy better off, but that seems to me it should be different from a short-term interest in saying preserve my entitlement or preserve my subsidy. Those are two different kinds of short-term interests, and I think we need to not group them together. Let's make a case for our short-term interest in a peaceful world. Let's make our case for a short-term interest in a better economy. But let's say that short-term interests 
might be different from your individual hedonistic interest. Those are two different things. You can make a short-term argument for sacrifice. And the most brilliant example of this, I still say to this day, is FDR. Listen to his fireside chats. They're all on the web now. It's fantastic. The web, the web is great because it's there, right? I remember when I started teaching, even 12 years ago, I had to bring in like audio tapes and try to get this stuff hooked up. It's on the web now. Listen, FDR never says, right, well, this is not serving your short-term interest. He says it's going to be hard. And he says, you might not as an individual get everything you want, but this is going to make us better for you soon. And that's the argument I want to see ourselves make. Too often, I think we're making the argument, I'm going to help your group, and I'm going to help your group. That's not short-term interest. Those are wedge interests. Before we take the next question, let me uh, ask Michaels, because I, I think you've touched on it, but I'd like you to go a little bit farther. Concerning the recent American intervention in Libya, what then is America's responsibility for nation-building in, in that country? Which is very different than, say, what's happening in Egypt or Tunisia. Ab absolutely. Right, and also because um, we were the air force for the rebels in Libya. So, uh, I mean, what Colin Powell said years ago is right. You break it, you buy it to some extent. I mean, you, our fingerprints are all over this. We can't say we had nothing to do with what happened in Libya. So I think we do have a responsibility. I think we have a responsibility because, as I said, we were involved. I think we have a responsibility in Libya because we've been deeply involved in Libya since the beginning of the Qaddafi regime. This is a place where we have had a lot of oil interests and where we've been involved in doing all kinds of things, and everyone in the region knows it, so we can't pretend that history doesn't exist. But I don't think our, our responsibility means we need to go in and fix it. Uh, I think our responsibility is to try, and this is a big point I try to make in the book, to try to create a process that helps the Libyans to remake their society for themselves. We need to invest in a process. Again, that was the whole idea of a United Nations with a trusteeship council when it had a trusteeship council. That was the whole idea of creating an international monetary fund. These were all American ideas, in fact, forced upon the British and the Soviets by FDR. That was the idea of creating a World Bank. Right? None of these are perfect, and none of these are perfectly appropriate for Libya right now. But they're more the model of what we need to be doing. It's not just our money, it's our effort to make this possible. It's our effort to bring people together to do this. Uh, a case that I think is a good model for Libya, which is why I argue in the book we had a good chance in Afghanistan, and Jim will tell me better than anyone can, I'm sure why it's now all gone in a different direction, but was the Bonn conference process that happened in late 2001. It was sponsored in part by the United States and the European Union, bringing the various Afghan groups and those in the region together. And there was agreement. That's what produced the, the initial Karzai interim government, and that's what produced a process that was making things a bit better there. Who knows what it would have turned out? It was never going to be democracy with roses and things like that. But who knows what it was going to look like? It was certainly getting better. Everyone believed it was getting better, right? That was more the diplomacy of the United States than it was the actual money Americans were putting on the ground. There wasn't actually much money that was being put on. We invested a lot a lot in this. James Dobbins, who was the American ambassador, has written a very good memoir about this, talks about his role, but the number of Americans who were involved in that. What happened was, once that started to work, we sent them all to Iraq, right? Um, I'd like to see us go through a bond process with Libya. I'd like to see us invest in that. And, and I think, actually, we have, in part. Uh, I, I think we have to give uh, both Democrats and Republicans credit for this, because both uh, Obama and McCain were calling for something along these lines. You could argue there has been some consensus uh, on this. So I, I, I'm optimistic uh, in, in that sense there. Does the term colonialism still have any, uh, anything to do with today's world? Uh, great question. Um, we just did a graduate seminar on this a couple weeks ago. Um, so I think, yes, uh, I think there are countries that are still pursuing uh, colonial policies. I don't think colonialism is a major force of international behavior. It has become more costly and it is almost universally seen as illegitimate to go in and claim you are directly permanently ruling, ruling someone else. Um, but I would argue the Chinese are pursuing a pretty colonial policy on some of their borderlands and I'd argue the Russians are. That doesn't mean we're necessarily better. You could argue some of what we're doing might have worse implications, but it ain't colonialism. Uh, three things that are to me are the essence of colonialism. Three things that are the essence. A, you train a people to permanently rule another, hence the British colonial office, right, French Foreign Legion, to permanently rule. B, you make an argument that this society should not govern itself, ever. We do the opposite. We arrive somewhere that's ungoverned and say they're going to govern themselves tomorrow, right? And three, 
you develop a specific policy of resource extraction. You might invest in, but you're extracting out. We generally invest in, and Lenin was right about this, we invest in because we think we're in the that the economic trade will benefit us. But that's different from resource extraction. Uh, again, not necessarily better, but different. Categories and how we define them, I think, do matter. That's, again, why history is, is I think, important. Other questions? Uh, yes, you, you, you preempted my, what was going to be my first question, oh, and that is, is nation building always related to the military and not the Department of State? Um, in, uh, when we had the military panel here a week or two ago, uh, one of the members mentioned that in Afghanistan, he felt they'd done a, an effective job of nation building, but they were in the process of handing it over to the State Department. And I came away with the feeling that he wasn't so sure they were up to the challenge, or, or at least that was a question uh, remaining. And what I'd like to know is, is there any effective nation building that is without a military, that, ju that just comes through international diplomacy? Or is it too evolutionary to get the title nation building? Uh, great, great question. I, I, I wish I could say I think it could be done without the military, but I, I actually historically can't think of a case where there hasn't been a military component of it. But I think this is what makes it complicated. It can't be dominated by the military. There must be a military component, but it cannot be entirely run by the military. The military cannot be the agenda setters all the way through. And almost everyone I've talked to in the, in the military, I don't, I don't know who was on your panel, is skeptical that the State Department can do it. Part of that is just, um, quite frankly, the self-centeredness of military figures seeing and thinking that they're the only ones who can do it. Uh, but part of it is the reality of the limitations of the State Department. Um, but this is why what we call civil-military relations really matter, because nation-building is a civil-military undertaking. It is not civil or military. And here I differ from a lot of the NGO activists who think you can do it without a military. No. And Europe, I hope the EU gets in the business of nation building. We need their help. But they're never going to do it if they don't have capable military forces to do it. Uh, but that doesn't mean the military should run it. How do you reconcile nation building and stabilization? So I think stabilization is a component of nation building. Uh, but nation building is much more than that. And stabilization, it seems to me, is part of the process. It might be a precursor or one of the first steps you have to go through, which is where the military plays a key role. But stabilization cannot become an end in itself. And one of the points I make in the book is there has to be a purpose beyond that. Uh, and we've seen where stabilization doesn't work uh, in our own experience, where time and again we have, I think, invested in dictatorial figures who offer stability hoping they will do the nation building that they don't do. And that has undermined our interests significantly. Uh, take many of our friends, right, in places like Saudi Arabia, Egypt under Mubarak, right, and parts of Latin America. Uh, most cases we've gone in hoping that the dictator will stabilize and then nation build. When they don't nation build, we pay a huge cost, right? And, and this, is the, this is the way I tell the story of the Iranian Revolution to my students. Right? There's the problem with the Mossadegh coup, but then there's the problem of investing so much in the Shah, uh, and then the Shah not doing the things that create a functioning civil society, and that clearly blows back at us, and for good reason. I empathize with why Iranians don't trust us in that context. Lynn, you have a last question. Palestine, which countries or institutions could bring stability there? Well, um, so before I say what I'm, what I'm going to say, let me, let me preface this in a few ways, which I have to. Um, I am Jewish, I'm part Jewish, part Hindu. I'm uh, involved, uh, I've always been involved in reform Jewish uh, activities. Um, and I'm a believer that there should be a state of Israel, but I think the biggest hindrance today to um, functioning nation states for the Palestinian people in that region is Israel. And I'm deeply offended that um, I'm speaking now personally, so you know, don't hold my institutions accountable for what I say. Uh, I'm deeply offended that the Prime Minister of, of Israel is coming to the United States and actively campaigning against the President of the United States. I don't think you do that. We would never have accepted the Soviets doing that. You don't do that. Uh, it's not appropriate. And it's not appropriate for Reformed Jewish congregations to sit on their hands and not talk because they're afraid that somehow it's not right for Jews to talk about these things. The Palestinians have done most of the damage to themselves historically. 
but Israel has now built, uh, because of its party structure, a set of politics that take advantage of that and that hinder movement forward. Um, I think there are many things that could be done to help the Palestinian people. The biggest one of all would be to end the Israeli occupation uh, or to end the increased settlement in those areas and the over-militarization of that, of that region. Uh, and uh, we as Americans should think long and hard about why we're supporting that process. We should support Israel. We should support a Jewish homeland, but I don't think we should support uh, that process. And so I think we're in part to blame insofar as we pay the Israelis who then do that even if they're doing it despite our wishes. Um, so that's, that's where I stand on that one. I hope I haven't, I hope I haven't offended uh, anyone. Thank you very much. Thanks. Wonderful talk. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.